read this text, and actually we were originally going to go through all of chapter 2, that is not going to happen, we don't have enough time to cover all that, which is a bummer, but you guys can talk about the rest of it in connection groups, but let me just read this first part here. It says this, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and they were astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we, each of us hearing in his own native language, Parthian and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene? And telling in our own and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues, our own languages, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed and said to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked and said they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and address them. And I, I love that this is how he responds to the wine thing. He goes, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It is only the third hour of the day. That's, you know, that's his thing. So he goes, but this was what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the, and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." Let's just read this next part too. It says, this men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let's skip down here to verse 36. It just says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children 
and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Very successful first day of church. <laughs> um, that's the story, right, of the very beginning of church, the first kind of really legitimate church service where the Spirit of God shows up and stuff begins to happen. And, and I, want, I want to show you guys really quickly, I want to focus mostly just on the beginning of this. We'll kind of touch on the latter part of two a little bit next week as well. But I want to talk to you guys about how this whole story starts. Because um, it starts in one, chapter one, and it starts with a really weird command. And so if we're going to understand this chapter, we need to kind of understand the context. And so this is what happens in Acts 1. Right? Jesus rises from the dead. He explains the kingdom. He, Jesus is, is, is back from the dead. It's this amazing moment. He's resurrected. He proves that. It's awesome. He's alive for 40 days. And, and one of the very first things he says to them, right, is he's explaining to them the kingdom, that they're supposed to go into the world and be witnesses of the kingdom of God, be witnesses of my resurrection. But before all that, he gives them a command. The first thing he says is this. Verse 4, chapter 1 of Acts. He says, and while staying with them, he ordered them, right? So this isn't even like a suggestion. This is a command. He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Very first thing he commands the church, right? This spearhead, countercultural, world-upturning movement that we're going to read about over the next 28 chapters, right? The very first thing he says is, wait. Wait. Don't go out and share the gospel. Don't go feed the poor. Don't go kind of create social systems that help to alleviate suffering. Don't go and try to bring the kingdom about. Don't go to the ends of the earth. Don't leave Jerusalem at all. Stay here. Because some days from now, you will receive the Holy Spirit. Now, here's a question that we need to ask from the beginning of this text. And it's the Holy Spirit seems to be really, really important in Jesus' mind when he thinks about Christians. So the, the question we need to ask is this. How important is the Holy Spirit in our mind when we think of him? How important is the Holy Spirit in your mind? Jesus, as he is starting the movement that will overturn the world, the first thing he says is wait for the Spirit. He doesn't say even that they should actually go and get a start on this thing and I'll kind of meet you on the way and give you this kind of boost along the way. It isn't like, hey, keep going. I'm going to give you this like one of those power-up mushrooms from Mario Bros, right? Like the Spirit works like that. It's like, hey, you're bigger now. You can inflict some damage on people. Like he, that's not what happens, right? He's like, no. He says you need to wait until they receive the Spirit. Completely wait. Don't do anything because without the Spirit of God, they can't do anything. Without the Spirit of God, they can't even get started on this mission. Jesus says the craziest thing, right? He says wait, but then he even says more than that, right? Earlier in Luke, he saw you talking about this, and he says it's actually good for me to leave. It's better that I leave so that actually I'm going to send my helper to you. And, and Jesus says from the very beginning is saying this crazy thing. He's saying don't go start the mission of God 
until the Spirit comes to you. And it's actually good that I leave because when I leave, the Spirit is going to come. And actually, the Spirit of God in you is better than me right next to you. Like, we talked about that last week, but it's worth just considering again. Think about what Jesus is saying there. Jesus, in the flesh, walking, talking, teaching, healing, doing miracles, God in flesh standing next to you. It's better that I go. Because when I go, the Holy Spirit's going to come to you. As Jesus starts his church, the way he starts it is very, very intentional, right? He starts it with a really clear and simple lesson, and the lesson is this. Everything about the life of a Christian, everything about the life of the people of God, the church of God, all of it is meant to be wholly and completely dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. Totally, completely dependent on the Spirit. So there's another question, and it isn't just what we think about the, the Spirit, but it's this question. It's how dependent are we, how dependent are you on the power of the Holy Spirit for the life you are living? Maybe another way to ask it is like this. It'd be, do you live your life dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit God has put inside you, or do you live your life dependent on your powers and your abilities? You know, I, I think that the reason that even, because Luke has, could skip over some things, right? Like everything that happened isn't necessarily written here, right? This is, this is Luke, this is an author, he's inspired by the Spirit, but he's, he's trying to come at this from an angle to help you see really specific things, right? Everything that happened isn't listed here. John says that at the end of his gospel, right? He's like, hey, I wrote these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of God. But man, if I wrote down everything, like I don't even think there's enough trees or like if the, you know, the trees were, were pens and the oceans were ink, they probably wouldn't even be enough to write everything Jesus did, right? So this isn't everything. So Luke has a really specific purpose that he starts the story off like this because he's saying, hey, you need to know that from the very beginning, this thing that's the church, this movement, it doesn't go forward without the power of the Spirit, period. It doesn't move an inch. It doesn't move an iota. It just doesn't go at all unless the Spirit of God does it. Guys, do you know that? Do you know that? Like, I mean, you realize that like if we come here every single week, like we can put way better musicians on stage than we have. We can get someone to preach who's way, way, way better than I am or Drake is. We can get the best people in the world up here and we can even get way better student leaders than we have, way better people in the crowds than you guys. We could fill this place with that. And what's true is, if the Spirit of God isn't here, it doesn't matter at all. None of it matters. Literally nothing will change about the world by doing that. The only thing that matters about this room, the Englert Theater, and the only thing that matters about your dorm room or where you live, or the only thing that matters about your connection group, your Bible study, the only thing that matters about your life is that the Spirit of God has chosen to come and dwell inside those who have chosen Christ. And that is the only thing 
that matters. It's the only thing that changes. It's the only thing that can take dead people and make them come alive. And so from the very beginning, he's saying, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to be part of this crazy movement that we're going to talk about called the church, the very first thing you have to know is that you have nothing inside yourself to add to this thing. Nothing. Peter, you're going to lead this thing. Guess what you have to add in and of yourself? Nothing. John, you're one of the apostles. Guess what you have? You're like the one guy who was at the cross with Jesus. What do you have to add to this? Nothing. Because if the Spirit of God doesn't come and fill you guys, it doesn't matter. Don't go out into the world. Don't go try to feed the poor. Don't go try to change the world because you can't do it. Nothing happens without the power of the Spirit. And, and the, the, there's another question that I think we should answer from that, and it's how do you know? Right, because that's a hard thing to ask. Like, how am I depending on the Spirit's power or how am I depending on my power? How, am I someone who's living my life kind of through the power that Jesus has given me through his spirit? Or am I living my life kind of out of my own strengths and abilities? How do you answer that question? Well, I think the text answers it for us, actually. Because what did Jesus say? He says, hey, wait for the spirit. So he puts them in this place of complete dependence. What do they do? What are they doing as this happens? One, chapter 1, 14, it says all of these with one accord. This is after Jesus ascends to heaven. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit. They're massively dependent people in this moment. It says all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. The easiest way to know if you are someone who is dependent on God's power or on your power is to look at your prayer life. It's really convicting. Look at your prayer life. Dependent people are praying people. And people who are independent, people who think that they can do it on their own, they don't pray very much. So I, I, that's the question I would say. Are you someone who's dependent on the Holy Spirit of God? Are, are we the kind of people who are depending on the Holy Spirit? The question is, are we a praying people? Are we like the apostles and kind of the, the, these strong like women who are pillars in the early church? Like, are we like them where when we gather together, that's what we do is we get on our faces and we beg God to work. We beg God to do something. We pray hard. Is that what marks this ministry? And, and if the answer is no, then it means that probably we're actually not a, not a ministry that really depends on the Spirit. It means that we're a very self-focused ministry, a ministry where actually we are stepping out into the world on our own strength, on our own gifts, on our own abilities. And, and I think if we're gonna learn anything from this text, it would be that if we, as Salt Company, try to step out on mission into this broken world, and we try to do it with our foot forward and our gifts pushed forward, we will fail completely. So that's how not to do it. What does it look like when people do depend on God and actually wait for the Spirit to show up. Well, it's pretty sweet. Check this out. Chapter two, 
When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, okay? Uh, so when the Spirit of God comes at the very beginning, right? Like that doesn't happen every week here. Like it, it, it's not that every single week for us, right? But that happened in this kind of crazy moment where all of a sudden the Spirit of God is coming to dwell in the hearts of men and it does not come quietly, Okay, this, this phrase here is awesome. Like a mighty rushing wind. Well, actually the, the Greek, it's like, it's hard to put it in kind of strong enough language because they use individual words. And so they're trying to use individual words too, but don't think mighty rushing wind. Think like it, it sounded like a tornado or it sounded like the loudest hurricane you could possibly hear. You know, we, I think some of us, when we think about the Holy Spirit, we think something like this. We think, wow, what a nice, kind, little spiritual force that lives in our hearts, you know? Like that's a, that's a nice, warm thing. Um, no, that's not how the Spirit of God came to, to dwell in the hearts of men. Actually, picture this, okay? You're in your house that you grew up in, uh, and you've got a chair, and like you bolt this thing to the floor, so it's not going anywhere, and you strap yourself into this, like, and you got like a full five-point harness, you're strapped into this chair, and then a tornado comes and begins to rip apart your house. Just picture that for a second, okay? Ripping apart your house, and your windows are breaking, there's glass flying across the room, you have drywall that's getting ripped off of walls and sent through other walls, you've got ceiling joists that are snapping in half, right? And all of that is happening in front of your vision, but you can't hear any of it because louder than like ceiling beams breaking and louder than glass shattering is this constant cacophony, this wall of noise of 300 mile per hour wind that you can hear nothing over. It's like, that's, that's what it sounded like. You know, the Spirit of God, it doesn't come into our lives like this kind of soft summer breeze. No, it comes as a tornado. It comes as a hurricane. I love this. I'm reading this book by J.D. Greer, Jesus Continued. And it's actually kind of shaping the way I view a lot of Acts. It's awesome. He says this. He says, in other words, talking about the scene, he says, in other words, this was no serene, peaceful breeze that filled the apostles with warm, happy God thoughts and a sense of quiet calm. No, the Spirit filled them with the power of a tornado taking up residence in their souls, filling them to be his witnesses. Jesus had started a worldwide revolution. They would continue it, and even the gates of hell would not be able to stop them. That's the first church service, and it was freaking awesome. What do you think of when you think of church? Like, what do you think of when you think of, like, the church? I think that so many of us, when especially like this age range, right? Millennials, like so much of us, I think we, we kind of approach church like this. And, and I've heard this said so many times from people I meet on the street. If I'm kind of trying to share the gospel with someone or I, I meet someone, I'm kind of talking to them about how, how, what do they think about church? And so often this is what I hear people say. They say, oh man, I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm a spiritual person. I, I'm someone who, you know, I've got relationship with God, but I don't like the church. Like, I don't like organized religion. If you think of the church as an institution, you are completely missing the point. 
That is not what the church is. No, the church is a movement that from the very beginning is born out of this hurricane movement of God's presence going into regular, ordinary people. And it doesn't just stop with the wind. It, it kind of continues on in, 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 verse, in chapter two. Look what it says. It says this. Okay, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were together in one place, came from heaven a sight of mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house they were sitting. And look what it says next. It says, and, and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and it rested on each one of them. Let's stop there. This tongues of fire, what's going on here? Well, it's actually really awesome what's happening here. And, and we don't really pick it up right away. It's kind of confusing for us, but actually most people who'd be in the room or kind of the average Jewish person who maybe is like looking in a window, seeing this happen, they would actually have a pretty good idea of what's going on here. What's going on is this. In the Old Testament, God's presence is almost always revealed through fire, right? The very beginning where, where Yahweh, right? God gives his personal name to Israel. He meets Moses. Where does he meet him? In a bush that's on fire, right? There's this flame that's consuming a bush and the bush isn't burned, but there's this fire and he's like, what's going on? That's where God meets his people. And after he frees them out of Egypt, there's actually this pillar of fire that guides people at night, like hundreds of feet tall, this massive pillar of fire that like gives them warmth and gives them light. But also like, you don't want to go too close to this because this is actually fire. It's going to burn you up. They finally get to Mount Sinai, right? And on this mountain, there's smoke going up like a kiln. There's flames. And like, basically it's like a, <laughs> it's like a, Wow. Forgetting, what's the volcano? Yeah, that word. Yeah. That's why I have a manuscript because I, I forget words. It's like a volcano, right? Like, there, like literally this massive, powerful fire is going on on top of this mountain. And then you get into the Holy of Holies, right? They finally build this final temple. It's after this traveling temple that's called the tabernacle. They finally get to the temple and they build the Holy of Holies, right? This place where the presence of God is going to dwell and this kind of pillar of fire and smoke, it actually comes and it fills the temple. And like fire is this symbol to all the people of Israel. This is God's presence. This is like a physical presentation to you. My presence is right here. And when the spirit of God comes into this room, this fire doesn't stay as one entity, one thing. It ends up splitting itself up and it goes to rest on top of the heads of all the people in the room. And this is absolutely incredible what's happened in this moment. And in the whole story of the Bible, like even after Jesus coming, this is a moment where once again, it is like the story has changed. Like we are not reading the same story we just read. Like this is a new world because it means that the white hot center of the presence and holiness of God is no longer confined to a specific geographic location, but it has come to indwell the bodies of every single Christian in the room. That's crazy. And then what's even more crazy is that they don't die. Like throughout the whole Old Testament, Whenever you get near the presence of God, normal sinful people, they're consumed by the holiness of God. That's probably why it was fire. So that God could kind of clearly say, hey, don't come near. You know fire burns you. My holiness will too. 
And so the holiness of God is poured into their physical bodies. They don't die. Instead, they are more alive than they've ever been in their entire lives. Look what happens next. It's awesome. They start speaking in tongues. And it says this in verse five. It says, now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, right, this massive wind noise, they're starting to kind of prophesy and speak in tongues. They came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing him speak in his own language, right? I'm not gonna read through the whole list again, but they're, they're, they're hearing him speak in their own language. They're asking this question, what does this mean? because they are Jewish people. They know the story of Israel and they're kind of coming up on the scene and they're like, okay, there's this wind noise. We know that, that uh, the spirit of God, the same word for wind is the same word for spirit. And so already they're kind of putting this together going, man, maybe this is like a spirit of God thing that's happening right now. And they probably see these flames of fire that are going on and they're like, okay, I know what this is about. And now all of a sudden they hear them speaking the words of the kingdom of God, the story of Jesus. They hear it in their own language. And they're like, I know these people don't speak what I speak. They're from Galilee. They don't know my language, but I'm hearing every word crystal clear. And they're going, what is going on? What is going on? Well, what's going on? In order to understand it, we actually have to go back to the very beginning of the Bible. Because this is one of those chapters in scripture where it actually is answering so many questions that we've had for so long. If you've started from Genesis and you've already gotten to Acts, so many questions are answered here. Where does the story start? Right, Genesis 1 and 2. It starts in Eden. Eden is a garden, but it's way more than that. Eden is this place where the presence of God and humans can exist together. It's like a temple. Right? It's like temples, when you look at the idea of a temple in the world, this idea of a temple is like, okay, the presence of God and, and, and the presence of man can kind of coexist in this tiny space in the world. And Genesis 1 and 2 is saying that's how the world was at that time. That's the garden world that he created. It was all this kind of place where God's presence and humans exist together, a place where heaven and earth, they weren't separate places, but God's space and our space were kind of joined together in this one area. And that's, that was our home. Heaven and earth combined. That was how we were created. We were created to live in that world, but sin changed that, right? Genesis 3, we're kicked out of the garden. We rebel against God, and, and we're actually kicked out of the presence of God, right? And so Eden is this place where God and man are together, and we're supposed to be in this space, but all of a sudden sin does this thing. It doesn't just do it in us, in our relationship, but it does it in the world. And now heaven and earth are separated. And so we live in this place called earth where the presence of God, heaven, it's not there anymore. They're different places. They're different spaces. And as sin continues to ravage this place that's lacking the presence of God, the story gets terrible and terrible and humanity becomes unbelievably wicked. God sends a flood a few chapters later in Genesis 6. Even after the flood, humanity is still marked by so much sin and so much evil. And eventually we get to this chapter in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel. You're like, I didn't think we were talking about Babel tonight. We are, because we're in Acts 2. What happens in the Tower of Babel, right? 
Some of you know the story, some of you don't. But basically, humanity joins together this for the first time in the history of the world, right? No, no war, uh, no kind of fighting against each other. Humanity is actually united and organized, and they have one goal. And that goal is to do the exact opposite thing God told them to do. God says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. They say, we're not going to fill the earth. We're not going to multiply. We're actually just going to stay right here, and we're going to build this massive tower, not for your glory, but for our glory. And God looks down from heaven. He sees that these people, even though they're united, they're on a path to destruction. And so God steps in, and he confuses their languages. He casts them all over to the far ends of the globe. And that's kind of the last chapter of the story of what has sin done in the world. We don't have the presence of God anymore. We're isolated from heaven. We're isolated from him. But not just that, we're now isolated from each other. And it isn't just one group of people. Now it's all these languages, all these people groups, all these different cultures of the world now. And then the very next chapter happens and God begins to go on a rescue mission for all of those people. Genesis 12, God chooses a guy named Abraham and he goes into this group of scattered people. Did I just say scroop? Yeah, group. He goes into this group of scattered people and he chooses one guy. One guy, and he tells them that he's going to make him into a great nation. He's going to bless him, make his name great, right? This is the beginning of the whole story of the Old Testament, the whole story of Israel, and he forms a unique relationship with him out of all the people in the world. Why does God do this? Well, he says it's super clear in Genesis 12, 2 through 3. He says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, Abraham, so that you will be a blessing. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He's like, I'm blessing you so that you, Abraham, and your family will be a blessing to all the families that are scattered across the ends of the earth. Abraham, what I'm going to do in you isn't just for you. It isn't just for your family. It's for the world. It's for all the scattered families of the whole world. Sin has strewn my people that I love into every culture and every corner of the globe, and I will not rest until I reach all of them. And so he gives his people, the Israelites, the law, right? This amazing reflection of his character and his holiness. And he has them build a tabernacle, right? This, this thing that on, on Sinai, the, the presence of God is kind of terrifying because it's just kind of out there. It's, un, it's unwieldy. And so they're, hey, build this, this space, this tabernacle that my presence is actually going to fill. And you're going to take this with you wherever you go so that my presence will lead you and it'll be with you. And eventually they build a temple where the holiness of God dwells in the midst of his people and he gives them the promised land, a place where God would provide for his people. And all of this, the point of all of it, was an invitation for all of the nations to come and see the God who created you. Come and see Yahweh, this God who provides for his people. Come and see this amazing God who has done these great things. All of you who are out there, come and see. But God's people totally fail. Over and over again, as people fall into sin, instead of worshiping God and spreading his glory to the nations, inviting them to come and see the one true God, they end up actually worshiping the idols of all the nations around them. Sounds a little bit like Salt Company, right? Over time, they're eventually conquered by the nations around them, Wisconsin, 
Um, I'm just kidding. That's a joke. Uh, over time, they're eventually conquered by the nations around them. And, and actually, Israel ends up getting dispersed to all over the world, right? Assyria comes in, Babylon comes in, wipes them out, destroys the temple, destroys everything, burns all of it, takes all the gold, and strews the people all over the face of the earth. And God's presence leaves. One day in the temple, his presence just goes. You can see it. So much sin, so much rebellion that eventually God just says, I'm out. I'm, out. I'm gone. And the presence of God leaves Jerusalem. Jerusalem is destroyed. But as God's people are failing, and even as they are conquered and spread into the entire world over and over again through the prophets, we're told this really crazy thing that God's plan hasn't failed. And we are promised a day where God will not only bring back and redeem his people from all of these nations they've been strewn to, but actually God is going to bring back and redeem all the nations as well. And actually we see this over and over and over again in the whole of the Old Testament, right? Amos, this awesome prophet at the end of the Old Testament shows us that Israel isn't just called by God's, that it shows us that it isn't just Israel that's called by God's name, but actually it says that all of the nations will one day be called by God's name, right? Israel, who are you? Well, it's, it's God's chosen people. It says, no, no, one day all of these nations are gonna be called the same thing. Micah 4 shows us that the mountain of the Lord is the mountain that one day all of the nations will flow into. Habakkuk 2 shows us that one day the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth in the same kind of way that the waters cover the seas. Isaiah 49 tells us that it is too small a thing for God to just bring back Israel, but that God is going to make his servant a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And then in the midst of all those promises, in the midst of God's people who have completely failed, God's presence comes again to earth. And this time it wasn't in a, f a flame, it wasn't in a cloud, it was in a person. The, the, the place where heaven and earth meets together, it, it wasn't the Garden of Eden anymore, it was now a, a man named Jesus. Fully earth, fully man, fully heaven, fully God, slammed together into a human body who walked and talked and he ends up living a perfect life, the perfect human, the exact way humanity is supposed to live. Jesus lived that way. And he ends up dying this horrific sacrificial death on the cross, where even when he's up on the cross, he doesn't curse the people who are doing it. He says, look, God, would you forgive them because they don't know what they're doing? Three days later, he rises from the grave and he does that so that this moment in Acts 2 can happen. That's what all of this is leading to. This is the next chapter in the story that Jesus bought and purchased. It's Acts 2, because instead of inviting people, like the whole history of Israel, inviting people kind of into the near presence of God in Jerusalem, God puts his presence inside everyone who has been united to his son. He puts his presence in us, and then he actually sends us into the world that separated from him. This is the craziest thing in the entire world, guys. 
Like, do you realize that Christianity is unlike every single other religion in this way, right? Like, we, we don't have a pilgrimage, you know? Like, we don't have a, a, a location, kind of a place that it's like, man, this is like the really holy place. And if you go here, then your prayers are going to be answered. Or this is like a, re- like a set-apart place. This is like really where, if you go on this mountain, like the, the presence of God is really strong here, right? We don't have a Mecca. We don't have like any place like in the Himalayas, like the Buddhists. No, what do we have? We have the white-hot center of God's presence, the holy of holies. That now dwells right here. And we don't invite people to come and see our God who's over here. We step out into a world separated from their creator and we bring the presence of God with us wherever we go. In that moment of Acts 2, the world has completely changed and the mission of God hasn't changed, but all of a sudden it's become clear how all the nations are actually gonna be reached. How is this actually going to happen? The power of God, the power of God has come to dwell inside of people. That is crazy, right? Another place it says the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, that has come to dwell in your mortal bodies. And immediately, as soon as this happens, right? Rushing wind, fire, whoa, what's going on? Immediately what happens? the message of God begins to ring out in the world. And not just ring out right here, but it begins to ring out in every single language under the heavens. Like it lists actually in the Greek, every single kind of known place in the world that they knew about them. They're like, this is everything. These are all the places we know. All the Jews who were everywhere, they came back and they're hearing it. And what is happening in this moment? Well, it's a sign saying, actually the Holy Spirit, what he's come to do is he has come to actually propel and finish that original mission that God started all the way back in Genesis 12. And the way he's gonna do it isn't by come and see. The way he's gonna do it is by Christians going and telling the world. And it's going to happen. That's what's so cool about it. Peter in Matthew, I think it's Matthew 16, he's talking with Jesus and he kind of has this first confession of faith. It's like, who are you? He says, you're the Christ. That's who you are, Jesus. You're the son of God. And he says, oh, this confession, Peter, I'm going to build my church on this and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know, I was thinking about this today and I don't know why I'd never thought about this, but do you guys know what gates do? Like, You do, right? We all do. They keep things out. That's what gates do. They're a defense mechanism. That's what a gate is. (laughs) To keep enemies out. And he says, the gates of hell will not be able to stand against the church of God because the church of God is filled with people who have the power of God living inside of them. Listen, guys, the church is not a defensive fortress against the enemies of Satan. That is not what this is. That is not what Veritas is, not what salt is. It's not this defense kind of fortress kind of against the evil things that are out there. And we're gonna kind of hole up in here and protect ourselves from kind of these evil, demonic presence and forces that are out there. And it's a defensive thing. That is not what the church is. No, the church is the invading army of heaven that is breaking into hell itself to take back what Jesus has rightfully claimed as his. How awesome is that? 
The church isn't a building. It isn't a place. It is a movement fueled by the hurricane power of God's spirit as it comes to dwell inside normal sons and daughters. It is the breaking into the hardest to reach places in the world. And the sons and daughters of the light are daily breaking through the defensive lines of darkness and evil every single day. There is a battle, a cosmic spiritual battle that is happening every single day in this world. And guess who's winning it? Jesus. He's crushing it. He's winning it. Have you looked at the history of the world and seen how this tiny group of people has turned the world upside down? It's unbelievable. Actually, the people who are trying to squash this movement later in Acts, the religious rulers of the day, they're looking at this and they're saying, guys, you know what? If this is from God, you're not gonna be able to stop it. But if it's not from God, it will die out like every single other small Jewish messianic movement has. This one didn't die because the one who started it didn't die. He rose again. Guys, I I think that some of you in the room, I think if you're honest, you are really bored. You're bored with Christianity. You're bored with church. You're bored with Jesus. And I would just say that's probably because you have no idea what any of that stuff means. You barely know who Jesus is. You have no idea what the church of Christ is. You have vague ideas of what Christianity is supposed to be. And because you don't understand or have a real, genuine relationship with the king of the world, you're kind of willing, you're you're ready to just kind of call it quits because you're like, I'm just bored. Like, I just don't, I don't care. It's not interesting to me. I think that some of you are bored Because when you came to Jesus, the only thing you did was you picked up a shield and you picked up a helmet and you never picked up a sword. You've lived this kind of defensive, scared, insecure life when what Jesus did is he gave you a sword and he gave you the power of Christ inside of your body and he said, go out into this dark world and fight and win in the name of Jesus. This song we sang right before we got up here, right? It says, let all nations sing for joy. Let all nations sing for joy. And then it has this refrain. It just says, how great is the glory of our Savior. What a price he paid for me. Guys, this is what the Spirit is about. This is what he's doing in the world. Let all nations sing for joy. How great is our Savior. Look at the price he paid for me. This is what the Savior does. I don't know who wrote this, but I remember reading it earlier this week, and it's just someone who was saying, man, it's, it's because my name is graven on his hands that his mission is written on my heart. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit begins to be powerful in your life, is the mission of Jesus, the mission of Jesus' spirit begins to overflow in your life. I read this quote today, it's by Spurgeon, so you know that it's, it's good, he says this, 
And this, this hit me in the chest, guys. He's talking about the beginning of Acts, and he says, if Jesus is precious to you, if Jesus is precious to you as he is to the Spirit, you will not be able to keep the good news to yourself. You will be someone whispering it into your child's ear. You will be telling it to your husband. You will be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Without the charms of eloquence, you will be more than eloquent because your heart will speak and your eyes will flash as you talk about his sweet love. It cannot be Listen to this. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. He says, if you really know Christ, you are like the one that has found honey. You will call others to taste of its sweetness. If you really know Christ, you are like the beggar who has discovered an endless supply of food. You must go tell the hungry crowd that you have found Jesus. And you are anxious that they should find him too. Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. You either try to spread abroad the kingdom of God or else you do not love him at all. I think he's right. And what I also think is that there are some of you in the room and when you read that part in Acts about this whirlwind tornado that comes into this room and totally changes up the entire plan to these people's lives. Like no one goes through a hurricane and is like, yeah, pretty much life as always. No. And I think what some of you in the room, I think that what you're doing is you are standing at a distance and when the Spirit of God prompts you and you see the Spirit of God starting to do something, what you do is you're scared and you don't know what the end of that's gonna be. You don't know how crazy that storm's gonna be that's gonna upturn your life and you're afraid of that. And so what you do is you keep that a little bit at a distance. I remember sitting down with someone, my junior year of college, one of my good friends, and I sat down with them, and I'm, I'm going back to China again. Jesus had totally wrecked my plans already, so I was like, maybe he'll wreck yours too, and so I was sitting down with them. <laughs> I sat down with them, and I'm like, hey, you should come to China with me. There's a ton of people here who do not know Jesus, and we can go tell them about him. What else are you going to do this summer, man? And I remember it as clear as day. I'll never remember this rest. I'll never forget this rest of my life. He sat down in the most, and just really brutally honest, he goes, David, like, here's the thing, man. Like, I'm afraid that if I go to China this summer, God's gonna call me to go there the rest of my life. And I'm unwilling to do that. So I'm not gonna go this summer. And I remember in that moment being so like, I, I got it, I understood. Like I had grace for him, but I was also so frustrated. Because I was like, man, like, Think if these people did that. And Jesus is like, I'm gonna do some amazing stuff through you. And they're like, I'm afraid of what that might look like because you're not telling me what the end of that road is. And because I'm afraid that you might lead this somewhere that I'm, I'm scared of, I don't wanna take the first step towards this. 
And I think that some of you in the room, I've talked to you, you're the same exact way. You don't want your life to get upturned by this vortex of the Spirit of God who is going where he wants, when he wants, and he's asking you to just come along for the ride. And you go, that's scary to me. I want to be at a distance. The question I want to ask you is why are you guarding yourself? You know who Jesus is, you know he's good. You know he loves you. You know he has the best thing planned for you. And his spirit that he has put in your life to lead and guide you and overturn your life plans, he put that in you for your best. He put that in you for your joy. And what I want to say to some of you is what would it look like if you guys just stopped pushing that away Stop whenever kind of it seems like God might be changing your plans. You kind of, you go on the far side of the road because you're like, I don't want that. What would it look like if you guys just earnestly desired the spirit and started being like these people in Acts that said, you know what? We're just gonna start praying. We're gonna start praying for really big things. And we're gonna start being people who aren't dependent on things that we have, things that we can do, but we're gonna start being a people who are radically dependent and start praying for nothing else than just God, send your spirit, give me your power. And I think that if we did that, and I think that if some of us actually just let go of our fears and just stepped into this hurricane of God, I think on the other side of it, we would begin to see some of the kinds of crazy things happen in Iowa City that we're gonna read about that happened in the first century. Let's pray. Jesus, we're some of those people that we're really far from you, God. We are far from the presence of God. We don't live near Jerusalem. We live in Iowa City. And God, we are those people that some men and women sacrificed their lives to bring the gospel to. And Jesus, we look at the very beginning of your church, and God, it's not this institution, it's this radical, crazy movement of wide-eyed people who are totally afraid and totally scared, and it is this movement where your whirlwind hurricane spirit comes and fills them to do amazing things. And so Jesus, once again, we just stand and we say, you're our king, we love you, this is your kingdom, may it come, and Jesus, use us to bring it. In your name, amen.